This morning we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 4, continuing uh, in our series through the book of Nehemiah. I think this is the fifth week. And, um, and the interesting thing about Nehemiah 4 is, is this idea of uh, God fighting on our behalf, God fighting for us. We see this theme over and over and over again, that it's God that ultimately defends his people. They have a, a role to participate in God's work, but it's ultimately up to God uh, to fight on, the, uh, on behalf of his people. When I was in fifth grade, uh, I, I got into a fight. And this was a fight that I had no business picking because there was absolutely no way that I could win this fight. So let me set up the scenario for you. We're playing monkey bar basketball on the playground. Monkey bar basketball, is, we had a little basketball and we played in the monkey bars because we didn't have a basketball goal at my school. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, all of a sudden, a scuffle erupts in the middle of the basketball game, okay? Fifth grade boys, uh, you know, ready, ready to take on whoever. Uh, one of my friends who is playing monkey bar basketball with me uh, is kind of getting taken advantage of. He's kind of getting picked on a little bit. And so I kind of stepped up, all four foot two, uh, 75 pounds of me, steps up to the plate and says, hey, yo, BP, you got a problem with Ben? You got a problem with me? And he says, what are you going to do? You going to hit me? And, like, I don't know what happened at this moment. Uh, I don't know where the courage came from or whatever. But I all of a sudden just, just hit him right in the face. And then immediately I realized that I had done something terribly wrong. And so I did the only thing that I needed to do. I ran as fast as I could to my house. So I took off and booked it. I didn't give a chance for him to hit me back. So I run into my house. I am sitting in my house thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I doing? I'm going to see this guy at school tomorrow. He's going he's gonna to beat the heck out of me up. It's not going to be good. And so I sat outside of my house uh, on the porch for the next three days watching these guys walk by. And one day they're walking by with a baseball bat. Maybe they were going to play ba- baseball, but I thought they were taking that baseball bat to me. So I stay on the porch that day. Another day they're kind of walking by like this, giving me this look. And it's just like seeing, it's just a hole right through me. Anyway, this went on for three days. And finally the, uh, the, the, the tension resolved. And I went back to uh, school and I went back to, to play uh, with these guys. And so everything resolved. And I share that story with you because... We're all engaged in a battle that we cannot fight on our own behalf. Every single one of us in this room share one thing in common. We cannot get ourselves out of what we've gotten ourselves into. We've all rebelled against the most high God that we've been singing about this morning. We've all guilty of sin, and we can't get ourselves out of it, no matter what we try to do to get ourselves out of this thing. And so we need God to fight for us. We need for him to redeem us, to save us, to show us grace. And that's exactly where we're going this morning. So if you would stand up, if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to read Nehemiah 4 together. If you don't, it will be on the screens. And just to, while you're standing up and turning your, your Bible to the page, to give a little bit of context of where we've been is in the book of Nehemiah, is we've looked at where Nehemiah uh, comes to God, and, uh, and, and he comes with this attitude of repentance as he realized that his people have sinned. So he comes to God, he repents, and then God gives him this burden, this burden to lead his people back home to to the promised land, to the land of rest that God had given them when he made covenant with them originally. And then we see Nehemiah walk in obedience to to Jerusalem. He gets there, he begins to build these teams of people to rebuild the ruined walls. And that's where we pick up today. Last week we read all about the different families that were a part of this. This week we're looking at what happens in the midst of them building the wall. So let's uh, read Nehemiah 4 together here. Nehemiah 4.1. Now when Sambalot, 
heard that we were building the wall, he was, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews and he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up uh, on it, he will break down their stone wall. Nehemiah prays, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions. And they said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans. With their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when our enemies heard that, it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, listen to this, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servants pass the night within Jerusalem, that they might be a guard for us night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you fight for us. You fight for us because we are defenseless. We have no ability to fight on our own behalf. Father, you fought for Israel. You enabled them to build this wall. Father, speak to our hearts this morning as we see all that you have in store for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's where we're going this morning. Looking at kind of three things that jump out, three movements that jump out within uh, the scriptures in Nehemiah 4. The first one is we see resistance. We see opposition, we see resistance present as the people are building the wall. The second thing we see is this, remembrance. 
We see that there's a turning point in what's going on in the Israelites' hearts and mind. They're, they're fearful, they're terrified, and there's a turning point as they begin to remember who God is and what he's done. And the third thing is we see a response. We see them pick up the swords. We see them fight and build the wall. So those are the kind of three movements that we're going to be tackling today as we look at this. So let's first look at the first one, which is resistance. And we see this in Nehemiah 4, uh, verses 1 through 9. The, the pattern of Nehemiah 4 is interesting because it's, it's, there's this resistance that comes about. And at first it's kind of this joking manner, right? It's like huh, if a fox jumped up on the wall, it's going gonna, it's gonna to knock over. Your, your wall is so weak. And so it kind of starts out innocent like that, and then it moves on to more, uh, more threats that are more intense, where it says, hey, we're actually going to kill you. That's, that's our plan. We want, we want to kill you Israelites. And so there's this movement within the people of God where resistance is present, and then they pray. And then resistance is present again. It's more intense. And then they pray. And so we see their first step in resistance is to pray. So the interesting thing about this is we, we see that all of their enemies are actually surrounding them. So if you were to look at, at Nehemiah 4, 1 through 9 there, you'd see that it, it names all of their enemies there. To the north, you've got the Samaritans. Uh, to, the, to the east, you've got the Ammonites. To the south, you've got the Arabians. And to the west, you've got the Ashadites, which were formerly known as the Philistines. And my question as I'm reading this and I'm thinking through this is why were these guys so terrified of little Israel. Why were they so afraid? I mean, Israel is feeble. They're weak. Why do they care? Let them build their walls up and worship the, worship the Lord. It's not like they're trying to take over Persia. Where are they? You know, I was reading about this in, in the parallel kind of account of Ezra 4, uh, verses 19 through 22. So we'll look at that just briefly uh, here for a second. Got a Bible, you can turn a few pages to the left there. Ezra 4, uh, 19 through 22 says this. I think we've kind of find our answer to the question that we've got here. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that the city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem, who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men... May, be, uh, may, may cease their work and the city may not be rebuilt. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So prior to this, what was going on, uh, when Ezra tried to, to, to bring back the, the captives out of Babylon, they stopped the work. It was the same king, King Artaxerxes. And so they stopped the work, and that's the account of it in Ezra 4. And the theme that I saw as I'm reading through this is this theme of fear. Now, the question is, who are they afraid of? And I think we see that, uh, that they're not afraid of the Israelites, but they're afraid of the God of the Israelites. That's where their fear is coming from. And so, anytime the opposition comes about, we see in Nehemiah 4, there's prayer that follows it. And so, amidst opposition, although it's tempting for all of them to run the other way, to run to other weaponry, Nehemiah first runs to God in prayer. You notice in Nehemiah 4.4, 4, he, says, he says something that's very fascinating to me. He says, we are despised. That word despised carries these tones of, of, uh, of contempt with it, meaning we're worthless. We don't have any value. That's how we feel right now, God, with all of these threats 
coming against us. We feel worthless. And then when Nehemiah prays right after this, it's interesting because it sounds like a prayer that I might pray whenever a bully in school was picking on me. Hey, God, I pray you have your way with that guy. Give him what he deserves. But Nehemiah's not praying for personal revenge. He's not praying for personal vengeance. Nehemiah's praying for God to act. God, be yourself and act. Judge sin like you promised to do, that we may have rest and enter into the place that you promised us. So here's my question to you. Here's my question to you. Where do you run when opposition comes into your life? Where do you run to when resistance erupts in your heart and things aren't going to plan the way that you want them to go? What is your tendency? Where do you run to? When critique, when criticism, when opposition find their way into your life, what is your response? You know, as I think about this, it's not a bad desire to want to be rescued from opposition. That's not a bad desire. That's, that's a very natural desire to want to be rescued from painful situations, from things in life that are not fun. But the question is, what is the source of our rescue? That's the question we've got to answer. Where do we run to? Is it, is it a substance? Is it food? Is it just to avoid conflict at all costs? And so you seek the approval of other people, and so you'll do whatever they say, but on the inside, you're absolutely miserable. What is it that you run to? Because if we can put our finger on that, we can see where the gospel needs to go deep inside of our bones as we seek Jesus. Where do you run to? And for nearly all of us, God has providentially navigated our lives into some very painful experiences. They've not been out of God's hand. God is in control of all things. So the question is, and and I know when I say that, when I say a painful experience, something comes into your mind. Maybe some of you are in the thick of it right now. And you have no idea what God's doing. and, 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 And you just want out of it at all costs. Some of us are in the middle of that right now, this, these painful experiences. And as I think about this, I think about Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 5, and this is a prophecy about what Jesus will have to endure for us to be holy, spot, spotless, and, and blemishness, for all of our blemishes to go away. This is what Jesus will have to do. So, so look on the screens, Isaiah 53, 3 through 5. Here's that word despised right here, the same word that Nehemiah praised. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Get this, guys. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And and by his stripes, we are healed. Friends, we have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. And he has endured what none of us have had to endure so that we can have peace with God. 
so that, we, uh, so that we can have fellowship with God once again, that we can get ourselves out of the situation that we found ourselves in, rebelling against God, sinning against God. He fought for us when we couldn't fight for ourselves. This is what Jesus has done, and this is what it took. And the question I want to pose to you is, is what, makes, what makes us think that our sanctification would look any differently than it looked for Jesus to make us holy? You see, we want to be made holy, we want to be made uh, righteous in God's sight. But the undoing of all of that sin that's in the world is often very painful. So even though we're experiencing pain, we're experiencing trial, we're experiencing circumstances that are flat out just not pleasant right now, we have hope because there is a present value for the blood of Jesus in our lives. There's a present value. It's not just a future value. There's a present value right here, right now, today. That because Jesus came and he did what he did on the cross and he rose from the grave, that we have hope today, not just for tomorrow, but hope for today because you know what? He is with us. He's with us. He's not, he's not withdrawn himself with anything. He's incarnated himself and he's come to live inside of us through his spirit. He is with us in the midst of resistance. Jesus is reigning in the midst of resistance. That's what he's doing. If you feel opposed and worthless and despised this morning, friends, just want you to know that you're not alone and that you can't do it alone. So if you're feeling hopeless right now, it's probably because you're trying to do this thing without Jesus. And as we preached a couple weeks ago, the scriptures say, Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you what? Rest. Come to Jesus this morning in the midst of the opposition that you are experiencing. Come to him in prayer, just like we saw Nehemiah doing. As we cruise on through Nehemiah 4, we see the second thing uh, that, that we notice here is this idea of remembrance. Um, Nehemiah 4.10 through 14, and in Nehemiah 4.10, we see something interesting. I'll, I'll read it for us real quick here. Uh, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. It's kind of a hopeless declare, isn't it? Friends, when we try to rebuild the wall of our lives by ourselves, it is a hopeless endeavor. And you will get nowhere except to the place of despair. Just like the Israelites were at in Nehemiah chapter 4. They were in a place of absolute despair because they realized that the task ahead of them was more than they could handle. And if you're at that place this morning, you're in that absolutely best place that you could possibly be for God to do a wonderful thing in your life. Because he must bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can allow God to fight for us as he's promised to do in the gospel. This, this is the gospel, this idea that God fights for those people who don't deserve it. He fights for our righteousness. He comes, he sends his son so that we can be made new, we can be made whole, we can be one with God again. This is what God does. This is his character. And then in Nehemiah 4.14, uh, you know, Nehemiah rallies everyone behind the wall. They're, they're, they're at the end of the rope, okay? And Nehemiah, it's kind of a huddle back in the corner. They're hearing all these threats. Their enemies are all around them. They're kind of in the back corner, and Nehemiah says, hey, look, do not be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of those hecklers, those voices, those threats against your life. Don't be afraid of them. And why can you not be afraid of them? Well, he goes on to say this. Remember the Lord 
Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord that spared Noah and his family. Remember the Lord that called Abraham out of a pagan land and called him to himself and promised to make a people from his household. Remember the Lord who spared the Israelites when they made this golden calf after they had received the law. Remember the Lord who parted the Red Sea when the Egyptians were right behind them ready to take their lives. Remember the Lord. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord in your life. This is what we have to remember, church. And I'm not talking about this cognitive remembrance. You know, I'm not talking about just being able to recall a few verses. While that's important, I'm talking about recalling the experiences of God's faithfulness in our lives. This is what we have to recall. We have to recall how God's word has been living and active in our hearts in the midst of opposition. We have to remember those times when God has rescued us, when he's provided a way out, when we've sought him. We have to remember the Lord. There's this quote from... uh, C.S. Lewis book, it's, it's one of the books in the series, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, where, you know, where the writer's talking about the situation where they're going to need to remember the things that they've received up on the mountain, the truths that they've received on the mountain when they go back down into Narnia. And I want to read this quote to you. It comes from uh, the book, uh, The Silver Chair, and it says this, but first, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. But as you drop down into Narnia, the air, it will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you have learned here will not look at all, listen to this, it will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet me, when you meet them there. That is why it is so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs and believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Friends, we're, we're in Narnia. God has shown us some things on the mountain He's shown us himself. He's revealed himself to us as a people. And he's done that. He's done that to you in your life. There have been times in your life where you have seen the Lord very clearly, haven't you? You've seen him high and lifted up. It's been no problem for you to worship the Lord. But in the midst of opposition, somehow the tables turn. And things don't look like we expected them to look. We must remember the legacy of God's faithfulness and his character. This is who God is. And, you know, God calls us to remember but for me, all I, all I do is I just know that I'm prone to forget every single thing that he's, that he's taught me. This is why I've got to constantly come back to the fight that God is fighting for me, that God is making a way for me. When we forget who God is, friends, we forget who we are. That's a problem for us all because when we forget who we are, then we try to live by another way other than the way that he's provided with us through Jesus. As I was looking at the Hebrew this week, uh, you know, the, the language that the, the book of Nehemiah is written in, uh, there's this word for remember, and I was astonished at what I found. Uh, it's this word zakar, uh, 
And it's, it's this word, it's this Hebrew word for remember, but, but it's also the Hebrew word for something else. The word male, man. It's fascinating to me. And some of you, some of, some of the wives in the room are thinking, oh, this all makes sense right now. Because he can never remember anything. He can't remember where he puts his keys. He can't remember, you know, what, what we had for dinner last night. He can't remember anything. So what's this mean for us? What, what, why, why the parallel right here? Where's God taking us with this? We're called to be the remembering ones. We're called to remember the faithfulness of the God who loves us and has saved us. And, and you know, as men, specifically, I want to take an aside here, and I want to talk to men just here for a few minutes. And really, all this will apply to everyone in the room. But just a, a second to kind of direct this toward men uh, for a few minutes here. So if you've ever been in a barbershop before, like a real barbershop, you know one thing. Men, there's no shortage of stories that men have, right? Men have stories. Can I get an amen? We got some stories. The other thing is you sit around a campfire, right? You're sitting around a campfire with some dudes hanging out. It's like story after story after story after story flows out of those conversations. We are storytellers. We are the remembering ones. The question is, what are we remembering? And the flip side of that is, what are we forgetting? I would propose that as men, we are in a large part, remembering the wrong things and forgetting the right things. When it comes to the most important things in life, we find ourselves just like our, our father back in the garden, Adam. We find ourselves in the midst of silence when God has called us to remember. Let me say this. You know, the idolatry for men a lot of times is... Um, it's work for us, okay? We, we find our identity in the way that we work. I've met with probably three men this week that have, that have talked about this, that have alluded to this fact. You know, guys, 10 years from now, no one's going to remember how hard you worked in 2016. No one's going to remember. No one's going to care. But 10 years from now, the way that you interacted with your kids during 2016, your kids will remember. They'll remember the things that you chose to remember. Because they'll be the things that drive you. be the things that drive your life. And on the flip side of that, most men that I know are terrible at living in the reality of grace. So we can't seem to receive the forgiveness and grace that God gives us for sin. Instead, we, we think that we've got to tackle that on our own. That we've got to own that ourselves. That we can't, we, can't re, we can't receive the release that comes from grace. We fail to remember God, but we never fail to remember our sin. And the interesting thing about that is that's a recipe for misery. Here's the reality of it. In Christ, God cannot remember the sin that you cannot forget. The thing that keeps you up at night because you feel the guilt of your sin, God can't even remember that. In Isaiah 43, 25, the scriptures say this, that he blots out transgression and that he remembers sin no more. That's what's true for us. So, men, why do we have such a hard time receiving grace from God and, and walking in that? Why do we have to continue to, to take on the cross by ourselves and beat ourselves up? He remembers our sin no more. Let's move forward, men. 
Let's move forward and walk in the forgiveness. Let's pass down the legacy of the faithfulness of God in our lives through our children, to our children's children, and our children's children's children. That it would be a legacy of grace that we found in Jesus Christ. Let's pass that story down. Let's choose to remember that story. And everything would be different. The Bible talks a lot about people who forget about God. A lot. I mean, this is the story of humanity. We forget God, then he, he comes and makes himself known. We remember God. There's no more vivid place than this, in my opinion, than Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 21 uh, and following. This is pretty harsh, but it's, it's really important for us to understand. For although they knew God, this is Paul writing to the Romans. He's, he's telling them uh, about a situation. For, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And verse 28 says this, And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. In other words, And since they didn't choose to remember God, they didn't choose to value God and his word and his faithfulness, God let them have their way with themselves. And that verse absolutely terrifies me. Because they knew about God, but they saw no value in seeing him as God, and God let their hearts be hardened. Friends, we have got to remember the faithfulness of God because we are the remembering ones. Let's move on to remembering better things. Things that are lasting, things that are eternal, things that are filled with the grace of God instead of the things that grab us by the throat and keep us up at night and lead us to misery. Because God is not remembering those things anymore about us. And that is really, really good news uh, this morning. Let's starve our idols and remember the Lord. And as Nehemiah rallied the troops, he he charged them to fight and build the kingdom in God's strength. As we get back to Nehemiah here. Let's let's, uh, close by looking at Nehemiah 4, 15 uh, through 23 here. So the the, the people um, are encouraged by Nehemiah's courageous uh, admonition that he gives uh, to them to remember the Lord and and, and fight for the uh, establishment of God's kingdom. They're, they're, they're kind of like all jacked up on Mountain Dew. I mean, they're ready to roll. I mean, these guys are like, hey, look, if I'm going to have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, so be it. Let's go do this thing because God is going to fight for us. Okay, it clicked, Nehemiah, when you said that. I remember that he parted the Red Sea and he led us through there. <laughs> that he gave us his word and he's never left us, even though we've left him time and time again. God will fight for us. And so they continue building the kingdom. I want to park on that whole idea of a, a sword and trowel mentality just for a second because I think it very much parallels with this idea of how God's called us as the church to build the kingdom. You see the idea with the trowel, and it doesn't say trowel in the Bible. I just kind of threw that in there because when you're doing masonry work, you kind of got to have a trowel to, you know, to, to move the mortar around to build the wall. So I'd imagine somebody had a trowel and somebody had a sword. You know, they probably had both weapons on them. See, the thing about the trowel is it's an offensive weapon, right? It's a weapon that's used to build the wall. This is, this is the thing that God has called them to. The thing about the sword is what? 
It's a defensive weapon. It's to keep the riffraff away from them as they're building this wall that God's called them to build. And we too, as the church, got to have this sword and trowel mentality. It's a, it's a both and. The difference is, is that God is fighting through us. He's fighting with us. He's fighting in us. On the offense and on the defense. So, so what, is the, what does the sword look like for us, the defensive weapon? Well, in Ephesians 6, I'm just going to summarize this. It says to take up the whole armor of God through Christ. We preached through Ephesians some time ago, and we spent a lot of time on this. And the, the, I want you to notice something about the armor that God has called us to take up. It, it all centers on the person of Jesus. So here's what it is. The sword of the spirit, the, the helmet of salvation, the, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, you got the gospel boots of peace that you're called to put on and, and the shield of faith. And we put on all of these things. How do we put it on? Do we just go to the closet and pick them up? No, we put on all these things through the spirit because it's God that's fighting for us. So they're thinking, okay, God, how are you going to fight for us? Because everything around me is kind of caving in. I was reminded, we went to the beach early in January. I was reminded of this situation where the family and I were... Uh, desirous of having a picnic on the beach. We're at Clearwater Beach in Florida, great beach. Uh, unfortunately, as we walked out, we, we did notice that there was no one else having a picnic on the beach. I didn't really think twice about it. Went on down uh, to the beach and uh, proceeded to get out our things. And then we started to notice, oh, there's a few seagulls around here. They're kind of flying around the water. They're beautiful. We'll take a picture of them and so we can remember our time here. And then we started to get out more and more of the food, sit out the blanket, had the kids all around. We were ready to eat our Publix lunch on the beach. It was going to be delicious. And then all of a sudden, I started to look around, and these seagulls, they're like a pack of brothers, man. They're like, they're like making a circle around us, and they're kind of they're walking in like this, kind of going in. Then all of a sudden, one of them gets up in the air, he starts flying. And the wings are hitting me in the head as I'm trying to eat my sandwich. And then all of a sudden, another one comes in, and he takes a graham cracker, a whole graham cracker, right out of my son Roman's head. Roman starts to lose it and cry, and when Roman loses it, you know it's bad, right? They were caving in. All around us. And so we had to go and sit on a park bench in the parking lot because the seagulls were that bad. I'm serious. Y'all go to Clearwater Beach on vacation and take lunch. I dare you. Have somebody video it. You know, it was funny, though, uh, you know, later in the day to, to watch other people try the same thing. We're like, <laughs> this is good stuff. I'm reminded of this idea of, of God being present in the, in the midst of, of our enemies, of God building his kingdom in enemy territory. That's kind of the theme of what we're looking at. I was reminded of this as I was meditating on Psalm 23 this week. Psalm 23.5 is like the verse that really no one really remembers. Uh, you know, it's the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He goes on to say this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What's a table? A table is an invitation. It is, a, is an invitation, is a, is a hospitable request to be joined, to share in fellowship with one another, to be present with one another. So that's what the Lord does for us. He, 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 prepares, he prepares a table with his presence in front of us in the midst of our enemies. And as, as I think about Psalm 23, I think about the fact that there would have been uh, lots of people, lots of, lots of wolves and ravenous creatures that wanted to, to take out the dumb sheep that were in the middle of the field. All around the field. But you know, 
It doesn't matter to the sheep because the shepherd's present. So when the shepherd's present in the middle of the field, it doesn't matter that they're vulnerable, that everyone can see them, that, they're, that their widest can be and, and an easy target. It doesn't matter because when they're with the shepherd, they're safe. It doesn't matter what's going on all around their life because when you're with the shepherd, you're safe, even in the midst of enemy territory. And I see Nehemiah kind of beating that theme home. That's why they had courage to build, even in the midst of all the death threats, because the shepherd was with them. The Lord was with them. That's why they could fight, fight for their mothers and their brothers and their sisters and their houses, as Nehemiah says. They can pick up the sword and the trowel, and they can fight because God is with them, and it is God that is working in and through them. And, and I think a lot of times in the, in, the, in, the, in the Christian life, we seem to think that this idea of perseverance, um, meaning the fact that we're called to endure in, in life and, and, and to, and to, and to uh, continue to walk out our salvation in fear and trembling until the Lord returns, I think we think that's our job to do that. It's not completely wrong to think it's our job because there's a responsibility factor for us to obey the Lord and to walk in him. But it's him that empowers us to obey. It's him that carries out his work in and through our lives as we follow him. And it was him that built the wall in Nehemiah 4. It was him all along. Listen to Philippians uh, 1 and 2 here. I got Philippians 1, 6 and then Philippians uh, 2.13. Be up on the screen here. Uh, this is Apostle Paul talking to the Philippian church. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So who's going who's gonna to bring it to completion? He is going to bring it to completion, not you. It's not up to you. You're to seek him and to repent and to obey, but he's going to bring it to completion. And then Philippians 2.13 says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It brings God great pleasure to work in and through your life and to draw you more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. This is the work that he wants to do. All the while that we're building the kingdom around us, the broken down structures, the, 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 the ways that the kingdom of God has to eradicate sin in our community. He's doing this. He's doing this work in and through his people today. God will fight for us. I'm going to close with somewhat of a painful story from my childhood. Um, I, I don't share this lightly, um, but probably the first glimpse that I ever got of the gospel uh, was when I was um, probably eight years old. Uh, I, my father had gotten remarried, and when he got remarried, you know, I had a stepmom, and my stepmom then had a, a, a son as well, so I have a half-brother. And my stepmother is uh, an interesting person. Uh, they're no longer married anymore, but um, she was just pretty aggressive toward me and, and um, I guess you could say probably mildly abusive toward me, uh, physically speaking. And uh, I just kind of, you know, as a child, you just kind of assume that that's part of what life should be. You know, you don't know anybody, you think, oh, maybe everybody experiences this. This kind of sucks, but, you know, this is what my life is today. Until this day that my friend Jay uh, came over to my uh, house with me at my dad's, and, and she went on to do her little thing where she was going to hit me. And Jay, being three years older than me, stood up, and he said, don't you lay another finger on him. And it was that day that I began to realize 
that Jay was advocating for me. He was helping me to fight a fight that I could not fight on my own as a young child. And I know some of you have experienced something like this before in your life. But friends, this is the invitation of God. This is what he has invited us to, to the Sabbath rest that only he gives. And he will fight for us on our behalf. And this is the walk of the Christian, that he fights for us as we rest in him. The enemy's held us captive too long. And some of you even in here today, you just, you need to turn to Jesus because you're fighting a fight that you will never win. Fighting a fight you were never intended to even fight. Turn to him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you fight for the vulnerable, for the weak, for the least. And it's you that gets the glory. God, I pray that you we would see this morning as an invitation to rest and to know that you are God, to see and savor your goodness, to taste the goodness of being forgiven and being freed from the penalty of sin and resting in this idea that we have a righteousness, an acceptance before God that, that we didn't earn, that was given to us. So would you bring us to that place this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.